great to be with you today. I want to say welcome to those who are tuning in online as well. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to dive right in today. You know, in a deeply polarized society that we live in, the two words pro-life often launch a broad range of emotions and reactions. Together, they trigger political opinions on both sides of the aisle and everywhere in between. Some would prefer we as a church avoid the entire conversation altogether. Wherever you land in this opinion, the Bible indeed has much to say in regards to the sanctity and the sacredness of life. You see, the creator of the universe has imprinted upon every human being his divine image. That goes for the child that is in the mother's womb, the person with special needs like Down syndrome, the prisoner with a life sentence, the refugee fleeing from a tyrannical dictator, the widow or single mom that's raising three kids on her own, the poor that are living in the streets, and the elderly facing a myriad of health complications. All were created, each and every one in the image of God, and every one of their lives are deeply sacred. Today, we're going to look to the Creator, our God, and we're going to look into His Word for hope, for healing in this broken world that we live in. Today, my prayer is that we stand for life in a culture of death, believing every man and every woman bears God's image. Today's message, I've entitled it, Standing for Life in a Culture of Death. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a broken world. That is no secret. We messed up your creation. (laughs) But Lord, we look for hope because one day you will restore not only this earth, but you will restore us. My prayer is that your spirit would speak through me. Your spirit would come to open our ears, our hearts, our minds to receive your word. And to give us the strength and the courage to stand and respond. In your name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Standing for life in a culture of death. So there's three things that I want to address today that what I believe it means to stand up in this culture of death we live in. And here's the first. The first is for us to understand that human life is sacred because we bear our creator's image, and all life belongs to him. You have your Bibles today or you want to open an app and read with us, I want you to turn to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, the very first chapter. They're going to put it up on the screen behind me as well. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at two verses, verse 26 and 27, which says this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. To be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. Everyone say, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created Male and female in his own image. Now, nowhere 
in that text or in the Bible does it say that God created only healthy or wanted men and women in his image? There is nothing here that says men and women with Down syndrome or other special needs are not to be included with those who were created by God. Or that a specific race or those with a certain amount of money in the bank or only those who come from stable home lives meet the requirement to be created in God's image. No, verse 27 is perfectly clear. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So every life has meaning because every life is created in the image of God. And there are no exceptions. In the image of God, or in Latin as they say, the imago Dei, That makes us human in the first place. It's the very thing that makes us human. And this is the beginning of what we understand to be known as a biblical worldview. You see, God created and imprinted his divine image upon each and every one of us. And because of that, every person, every human being should have dignity and value, regardless of its stage of development. How many of you have children? Okay. Isn't it awesome when you meet somebody for the first time and your kids are with you and they go, man, there is no doubt that kid is yours. (laughs) You know, why? Well, it's because God created us in a way that we impart to our kids our characteristics, our looks. Unfortunately, they grow up to be just like us. But you can tell they're yours because that's part of God's plan and his creation. They look like you. They act like you. You impart to them. Now, I want you to do is I want you to look straight in the eye of the person to your right. That's this way. Look at them. Look them in the eye. Okay, now look back to the, look back to the left. Look at them in the eye. Look at the person sitting behind you. All right? Look up here at me. For those of you online, just look at me, Okay? Each and every person you looked at is created in God's image. And just like our children look like us and have our characteristics, God left that on every human being in this room and in the earth. Each and every one of us are created in God's image. So we talked about a biblical worldview. There really are two worldviews. Hopefully, every one of us in here have a sacred or a biblical worldview, a view of looking at our our culture and our world through a biblical lens. But there's also another worldview. You see, for us, when it comes to the sacredness and the sanctity of life, in a biblical worldview, we take an ontological argument, if you will, or philosophy, meaning that when it comes to value of life and sanctity of life, we understand, as we read, that every human life has value and dignity because it is imparted with the image of God, that he created us, he gives, and he takes away. But in our culture, in our world, a very popular worldview, or secular worldview, or humanistic worldview, they look at life a lot of times as life is valued by your characteristics, your abilities, and what you contribute to society. You see the difference? We understand that every life has significance because you were created by a God who imparted his image. But in a secularistic worldview, 
It is, what are you doing for me lately? What are you contributing? What are you offering? But here's the thing. God has called us, his church, his people, to have a comprehensive pro-life view. To be comprehensively pro-life. You say, Alan, what do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you this morning. Being comprehensively pro-life is having a theology of life or a doctrine of life that encompasses the womb to the tomb. It's encompassing and having a theology of life that understands from the beginning of life, from conception until natural death. And it includes the unborn, it includes the elderly, it includes the disabled, the persecuted, the immigrant, the orphan, the widowed, the addicted, the prisoner, the poor, and every person in between who is being oppressed and exploited by mankind. That we would recognize and stand up and say, enough is enough, they are valued by God. Amen. You see, too often, God's people have taken a pro-infant but not a pro-life view. Christians, I believe, lose their witness in the world when we advocate for a pro-life position, but we are silent when it becomes caring for kids in foster care. Or we become silent about caring for the single woman or the widow. When we become silent about caring for the elderly. When we become silent about sex trafficking. When we become silent about racial reconciliation. When we become silent about caring for immigrants. When we become silent about caring for the poor. Silent about the prisoner. Silent about those who are in injustice. God's people must be 100%. Don't get me wrong. We must stand 100% for the unborn. But we must also be equally as passionate about all of these other gospel issues. That's being comprehensively pro-life. It's a biblical understanding that to attack an unborn child or any image bearer is to attack the very image of the creator God himself. That assaulting or enslaving another human being is nothing less than an attempt to eliminate the reminder that we were created and accountable to the one true God. Our church, ACAC, is a part of a larger denomination a group of other churches. And if you went to the website today, the Christian and Missionary Alliance statement of sanctity of life is this. That all human beings, regardless of race, gender, age, mental capacity, or physical condition, born or unborn, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, young or old, reflect God's image. That's what it means to be pro-life. That's what it means to be comprehensively pro-life and to stand for the sacredness of life. I love the mission of this church. I love the statement, which is following Jesus in diverse communities. That statement alone, what this church stands for, is a pro-life statement. Meaning that regardless of race, regardless of your upbringing, background, education, political affiliation, how much money you have in the bank, old, young, able, disabled, it doesn't matter. Each and every person has value in the kingdom of God. Yeah. 
Now, we are a voice for the unborn. We must be. Because we understand that life begins at conception. And here's why it is so important. Because if once the life of an unborn can be disregarded at birth, then we have truly become a society that embodies a survival of the fittest mentality. It's important and critical that the church of God stand up for those in the womb because if that falls, it's a domino effect with everything else. The Bible, in my opinion, is perfectly clear that life does begin at conception. A familiar passage to most of us is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. The psalmist wrote these words, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was formed in the utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. The entire Bible is consistent and clear that life begins at conception. One of my favorite passages in this regard is found in the Gospel of Luke. Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit and she goes to visit Elizabeth who is carrying John the Baptist. And the Bible says that when Mary walks in and she sees Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaps in the womb. The Bible is clear and consistent throughout that life begins at conception. Here's the second point today. The sacredness of life has always been, first and foremost, a spiritual battle, not a cultural battle. For us as Christians, the sanctity of life issue seems simple to understand. This is due to our worldview being based on Scripture, God's written word. However, we cannot expect a society that does not find the Bible to be authoritative to align with our Imago Dei view of humanity. Some of us, I think we forget that. For us, it seems common knowledge. Well, duh, life begins at conception. Duh, that's a child and a human being. Duh, it's murder. But each and every one of us understand and look at the Bible as the authoritative word of God, but we live in a world that does not. So, of course, they don't view it that way. It's different worldviews. It's a sacred biblical worldview versus secular humanistic worldview. And ever since sin entered into the world through the fall of man in Genesis 3, we have been living in a culture of death. One chapter later in Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And we have thousands of years of history that prove when man is left to its kind, it will oppress, kill, steal, and beat down anybody it can to maintain control. The Apostle James in the New Testament writes these words in the fourth chapter. Listen to this. James says, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. First and foremost, The sacred of life 
is a spiritual battle between darkness and light, more so than a cultural one. John 10.10, Jesus' very own words. This verse is probably familiar to you. He says, the thief's purpose, Satan's purpose, who rules the kingdom of earth is what? Satan's purpose is to steal, to, and to destroy. But Jesus says, the king of the kingdom of heaven says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. One comes to steal, to kill and destroy, and the other comes that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. It's a spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of life. And here's what happens. In the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of this world, sin drives us to selfishness. When we're left to our own devices, when we're left to sin, when we're left to selfishness, we will use power and authority and greed, and we will put our foot down on the necks of others so that we can maintain control of our own thrones. But the kingdom of light, where God calls us, says, no, I have called you for another way. I've called you not to be power-driven, but spirit-led. And when the Spirit leads you, you'll have fruit such as love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Two kingdoms, one battle. There's an illustration. There's three kings that illustrate this. And it's not Pastor Rock, Ross, and Blaine. It's nice being up here to throw some counter punches. Okay, the kingdom of the world. There's two kings, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. King Pharaoh, you might remember from Exodus. Okay, this is post-Joseph. The Bible says, if you look in Exodus, that all of a sudden the Israelites were growing in numbers and King Pharaoh's throne becomes threatened. Why? Because there were more Israelites. So what does he do? Let's wipe them out. And Moses is saved because infanticide happened where King Pharaoh is going to kill so he maintain control, maintain control of his throne. In the New Testament, the very same thing happens in the Gospel of Matthew. Magi come from the east. They go to King Herod. They say, we want to worship this king of the Jews. And King said, whoa, I thought I was king. And what does he do? To maintain his own power, to maintain his own control, he wants to wipe out every boy under the age of two. Two kings operating in the kingdom of Satan, killing, stealing, and destroying. But Jesus comes. King Jesus. And he shows us another way. And he shows us a great illustration in the 16th chapter of Matthew. Before I get there, let me set it up for you. So Jesus takes his disciples and he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And he's there and he turns to his disciples. You may remember the story. And Jesus asks them a question. He says, guys, who do people say that I am? And he's saying, who, does, who do the Israelites, who does the community, who does the crowd say that I am? And they go, well, Jesus, you know, a lot of people say that you're Elijah. A lot of people say you're Jeremiah, that you may be a prophet. And then he flips it. He goes, no, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus is like, Peter, you got it. Awesome. But then this happens. Right after that happens, at verse 21 in the 16th chapter of Matthew, it says, From then on, Jesus began telling his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem 
and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, that he would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now catch this. Peter takes Jesus aside after saying that and begins to reprimand him for saying such things. I don't know about you, but that's probably not a good idea to reprimand Jesus. (laughs) Peter says to Jesus, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter. I mean, this is like four verses after he said, Peter, you got it. You nailed who I am. But he looks at Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things from merely a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for your sake, you will save it. For my sake, you will save it. Did you catch that? You see, the Israelites were expecting a Messiah. But the Messiah that they were expecting was a Messiah that was going to come with a sword and kill all their enemies. And Peter's saying, yes, you're the Messiah. Jesus saying, you got it. So in Peter's mind, King Jesus is going to sit on the throne. Peter's going to sit there. John's going to sit there. They're all going to sit there. And the Romans are going to be wiped out. Peter was expecting Jesus to use kingdom, kingdom of earth power, authority. All of a sudden, the oppression, the foot was going to be on the Romans' neck. And Jesus says, Peter, you're a temptation. Peter, you're acting like Satan. Get behind me. Because my way is through the cross of death. It's a spiritual battle. If we refuse to allow Jesus to rule on the throne of our lives, we will go to murderous lengths to maintain perceived control. Think about this. The God, our creator, God, our creator, was willing to become fully man incarnate and taste death in order to restore life. And because of that, sacredness of life can only be valued to the cross of Jesus Christ. When I was growing up, like 12, 13 years old, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else? Okay, my dad's a big baseball fan to this day. We're big baseball fans, pirate fans, yes? <laughs> and uh, so I collected baseball cards, and Ricky Henderson was always one of my favorite players growing up. I just love Ricky Henderson, and I had his rookie card. I like, still have it, 1980, something like that. And I was 12, 13, and I'd get these magazines that would tell how much these baseball cards would worth. And I, and I would add it up, and I'd be like, Dad, this Ricky Henderson card is worth $30. My dad would always say to me, Son, it's only worth what someone will pay for. Yeah. Things are only worth what someone will pay for. So how much is a human life worth? How much is your life worth? It's only worth what someone will pay for. But the very creator God who imprinted his image on us, was willing to come and be one of us and lay down his life. So you want to know how much your life is worth? It's worth that the king of the universe would come and die and pay that ultimate price. Here's the third point. The church of Jesus Christ must lead the way in standing for life 
amidst a culture of death. I was convicted by a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. Listen to these words carefully. Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your souls know you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. One day, each and every one of us are going to stand before God. And when it comes to standing for life in a culture of death, God's not going to believe us when we say we didn't know. Because we do. God has called his people to stand for life. And let me tell you first, what we don't need more of is yelling, screaming, polarization, social media posts that just point fingers and blast the other way. We don't need any more violence or hate or control or pointing fingers. What we need is involvement. We need engagement. And here's the awesome thing that I, don't, I think we forget sometimes. The church of Jesus Christ has an incredible rich history of standing for life. Historically speaking, the first century church, the church that was birthed in the second chapter of Acts, Acts the very first church that was there and thrived under Roman occupation stood for life. The Roman culture was one of infanticide and exposure of children. What I mean by that is little girls weren't valued in first century Roman culture. Many times a dad, when his wife would have a child, if it found out it was a girl, they would take the girl and they would throw it in a trash heap and expose it because he wanted a boy. It was the church of Jesus Christ that was the first Christians that would go to these trash heaps and take the babies and raise them as their own and love them. It was the church of Jesus Christ under the Roman Empire in the first century that would stand against and counter death games by gladiators. They would not only attend, but they would speak out against it. And there wasn't free speech in the first century under Roman Empire. I didn't know this and didn't even never dawned on me before, but prisons back at that time were not segregated and separated by men and women. There was one prison and they all were there. And you can imagine how that went. It was the church of Jesus Christ that stood up and said that we need to separate men and women in prison. That's standing for life. The church of Jesus Christ has always stood for life in a culture of death. And before we go today, you know, I, I'm new here. I'm only about five weeks in. And as I was talking to some of the staff, I was asking questions. I said, what are ways in which ACAC, what are ways in which we stand for life? And I was blown away and want to share some of these with you. There's some pictures that they're going to show. Now, these aren't all ministries that um, are just isolated here at ACAC. A lot of them are, but a lot of them are ones that we have partners, partnerships with. But look at this, starting with, with Women's Choice Network. Now, this picture is a little personal to me because this is my new niece or nephew. I don't know yet because they don't have a gender. So my brother and, and sister-in-law who live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I asked if I could borrow that picture, but it went great with, with Women's Choice Network. So last year alone, last year alone at WCN, we provided 300, or they provided 330 positive pregnancy tests, and over 82% of them chose life. Last year alone, you, the ACAC family, gave over $35,000 towards this center on Ohio Street, which, by the way, we helped start in 2012. A one-to-one -one program, which I'm going to explain here at, at ACAC in a minute. This is another picture that um, this little girl, Anna, 
is a dear friend of mine. Anna has Down syndrome. I'm, I'm really close with her mom and dad, Chris and Jill. And by the way, Anna has Down syndrome. Did you know that two-thirds of children that are diagnosed with um, Down syndrome are aborted in our country? 90% in Europe. But Anna, her family, while they don't go to this church, our church has a very similar program called One to One, where 21 volunteer adult angels provide care for little girls and boys like Anna, 13 children with special needs so that their parents can worship in the sanctuary while their children learn about Jesus. After school place where 57 children five days a week receive individual tutoring with some improving two grade levels just since September of last year. Church in the Park is a seasonal ministry at Allegheny Commons across the street with over 60 kids a week being matched with adult mentors. Christian Counselor Collaborative provides both group and individual therapy resources to help people both in the church and outside the church where they average 155 counseling sessions per week. Christian Legal Aid provides free legal guidance to over 290 clients who are struggling with injustice just in 2019. Care Connections Office financially helps congregants in their time of need. They minister to more than 25 families a month. Ministry to Widows here at ACAC, which started with 10 widows and are now ministering to over 40 a month. There's some behind me. Beautiful. Pastoral Care, which does hospital visits and funerals and caring for the hurting. And you can see Pastor Donnie up here. Gracie. Gracie is 106 years old. And will be 107 this year. Prison Aftercare. It's a ministry that has gone 12 years strong. That has helped 200 plus men and women transition back into society. Christian Immigration Advocacy Center. Which offers low cost legal representation for immigrants. Last year alone helped 135 clients from over 40 countries. They received 10 green cards, eight citizenships were granted, and three families were reunited. Refugee and immigrant welcoming and care ministry offers support through events and care. Last year at Christmas, they celebrated with over 200 families. Last but not least, English as a second language classes for immigrants. It was started in 2015 with help learning English as a second language. Since that time, over 20 plus have become citizens of the United States. Countries such as Algeria, Cameroon, Iraq, Iran, Kenya, Mexico, Nigeria, Rwanda, Somalia, and Tanzania and more have been helped. This is what it means to be comprehensively pro-life. But hear my heart today. This is not a pat on the back for ACAC. I don't say this saying, wow, job job well done, we're done. No, there is much more that we need to do. And here's my, my comment to you today in twofold. One, if you need help in any of these areas, it needs to be known in our community in the city of Pittsburgh that we are here to stand for life. And we want to do that. And maybe you're looking for ways to be actively engaged and involved. There's a card that looks like this. It's on the front of the seat or back of the seat that's right in front of you. If you'd like more information on one of these ways in which you can get involved, write your name and put that in there and then drop it off at the the hub in the lobby and they'll follow up with you. But before we close, I need to say one last and maybe one of the most significant things to some of you today. In a room this size with this many people here, there are both women and men who right now are struggling with guilt, shame, and unforgiveness. And you don't need to have that today. 
The reality is there are some women here that have had abortions in the past. And the also reality is there are some men that are here that have probably pressured women or paid for abortions. And don't just hear from me, but hear from the Spirit of God today when I say to you that the cross of Jesus Christ offers grace and forgiveness to those that have been affected by past actions against life. It is not an unpardonable sin, and you are forgiven today in the blood of Jesus. Do not leave here with guilt and shame. You are washed in his blood. We need to understand that life is sacred. We need to understand it's a spiritual battle. And we need to understand that we need to be actively involved in standing for life in a culture of death. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. And I thank you so much for the testimony and the pictures that we saw of the work that you're doing and you just allow us to be a part of it. I pray that this church, us as your people, would never be satisfied. That we would be like the first church in the first century and standing for life, even in a culture of death that may scrutinize us. Let us be vocal, but Lord, let us be active participants even more. Guide us and lastly, be with those today that have past actions of standing against life. Let them know your grace. Let them know and experience your love. In the name of Jesus, amen.